Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of My Time Capsule, where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to see again or keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they wish they could forget from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Caitlin O'Ryan, who is undoubtedly best known for playing the handmaid Lizzie in the international smash hit Outlander. Now, I don't know if you've seen Outlander, but Lizzie has had the most amazing storyline. She's sold by her father as an indentured servant to Brianna Fraser in order to save her from being indentured to a man who would make her his concubine. And then she sails with Brianna to America, where Brianna is hoping to find her mother, who, like her, has travelled back in time from the 20th century to the 18th. And then, well, perhaps you should watch Outland for yourself. It's an extraordinary saga. I love it. And needless to say, Caitlin is wonderful in the role. Not surprising, as she's a graduate of the Oxford School of Drama, which has produced some top actors. Outlander was her professional debut, but in her final year at drama school, she appeared in The Lights at the Royal Court and followed this with If and When at Soho Theatre, directed by Blythe Stewart. Caitlin is a performance poet as well, often headlining at venues in London, but more of that in this episode. Now, Caitlin, despite her already impressive CV as an actor, is fairly new to the job, but she's very passionate about it and clearly heading towards a notable and very interesting career. So let's find out what led her in this direction by discovering the things that she would choose to put in her time capsule. Here is the delightful, surprisingly northern, if you watch Outlander, and fiercely intelligent, Caitlin O'Ryan. It 
It's so complicated. Yeah. Life is too complicated. It is. It really is. I'm going to talk to you about simpler times and happy times. <laughs> I, this morning, out of interest, thought I will look up things about you, you know, because yeah. I'm a big fan of Outlander, so I know about your performance in that, but I don't know anything else. No. Immediately, my eye was drawn to the fact that you went to the Oxford School of Drama. I did, yeah. And I went to what's now called Oxford Brooks. Did you? Was that in Headington? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we I went to Oxford School of Drama, um, which when I say to people, people seem well, I mean, it's impressive in its in its own right, but immediately think that I went to Oxford University and it is not affiliated. But we lived within the same town, obviously. So you got to see people in their capes going to their exams and stuff like that and all the weird rituals that they'd have. Like, we'd pop into Tesco's after school and they'd be covered in confetti and stuff. It was very <laughs> weird. It's a bit riot clubby. But um, I imagine that was quite the same for you, kind of near it, but not participating in it. Yeah, I think it's a good place to be. Yeah. I have a feeling I was similar. I went there a lot. I mean, I I got involved in all the drama at, oh, at the university. Oh, nice. Because you didn't need to, because you had loads of it going on. No. So we were out in Woodstock, not mm. not the cool uh, music festival vibes, but out in the sticks. Yeah. Um, which was lovely. So I, I lived in Oxford Centre and then we'd get the bus to school every day uh. in our tight blacks and no makeup, like a little cult going off to the farm. <laughs> I think, yeah, we were looking at them thinking that they were weird, but they were probably looking at us in our unitards thinking, what the hell? <laughs> Who do they think they'll be? They'll never yeah. be actors. They'll never I make know. it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny. weird world, isn't it? When you're doing yeah. those things and you have those ambitions and those dreams of becoming an actor, you do sometimes look at yourself in the mirror and think to yourself, you fool, you're never going to make it. Well, absolutely. And I think as well, you really have to tell yourself that it's for the art and you have to buy into the bullshit of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, at drama school, I spent 11 weeks doing animal studies, being a magpie. <laughs> and I tried to say that, I tried to explain that to my friends who were at <laughs> university doing like... I don't know, politics and stuff like that. And I'd be like, yeah, but no, it's, it's re actually really important. Like, I just, I can't quite, I'd, I'd be phoning them up in tears because I had a bad day at school because my magpie wasn't quite as good as what I, I wanted it to be. It, just, um, it didn't love shiny things. I, I can't get it to love shiny things. I know, uh, and I literally spent the day eating strawberry laces, pretending they were worms. And I thought that that was like, really, yeah, it was the hardest I could do. Don't put it down. I no. have a feeling that becoming a magpie is probably more important than politics yeah i think so nowadays anyway at least i can fly away from the politics <laughs> yeah but i met one other person in my career who went to the oxford mm. uh, school of drama and uh I, and I don't know why it came up in a conversation i spent one day filming on the crown with claire foy <gasps> yeah and we spent ages waiting for them to set everything up wow and chatted for about two hours and i remember her saying that she went there well i mean she was she was quite literally the queen of our school as well like i think uh, i think i was there when she'd just been cast in the crown so it was all very exciting yeah um but yeah i mean she's phenomenal isn't she yeah she's fabulous yeah, delightful it, delightful person yeah i think i think what's good about oxford is that it kind of People haven't really heard about it, but it, it really breeds, like, actors with integrity. And I think as well, it didn't have a lot of money. So what it meant was that we had to use our imagination quite a bit. And, you know, if we were doing a play or something, we'd have to build the set ourselves and do the costumes ourselves and stuff like that. And I think it also bred, like, modest actors. Mm. To, a, to a degree can be negative sometimes because, like, you kind of walk in and you might have a bit of imposter syndrome. But... 
I think that was quite special about it. Yeah, I, I know for a fact that if it had been there when I was a young man, I, I wouldn't have gone to Oxford Brooks. <laughs> but I, I went there deliberately because I thought, I read and they said it had a lot of drama. Yeah. And I was, I was studying law and I didn't quite have the nerve to do drama. Yeah. But if there'd been a place like that, and just looking at it, that in the countryside surrounding my fields, oh yeah. my God. It's crazy. I know. I think particularly for me as well, because I came, I'm from Oldham. So I went from Oldham and then I moved to Oxford, which was just like the quite literally the opposite. Like, you know, it's Oxford is so beautiful. And I mean, Oldham has its beautiful parts, but mm. it's so affluent and the buildings are so historical and amazing to be around just to be in that energy as well and I remember I think it was like my first day when I'd moved to Oxford and I was walking through this city on my own like trying to get used to it and these two people walked past me and one of them said to the other um you see the problem with the number 12 is and I was like that has got to be like the most Oxford thing like the problem with the number 12 but I just felt like I was in this place where everyone's at the top of their game or people are striving for excellence and to be in an area that feels like that is very inspiring as well. Absolutely. Although perhaps to study your magpie, you should have gone to Blackbird Lees, which is <laughs> not quite as affluent as the centre yeah. of Oxford. Yeah, that's yeah. quite one trick pony though, isn't it? Maybe I'd only be able to play birds if I went there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My grandson plays a game. Uh, talked mm-hmm. to him by my son, who's the producer of this podcast. They both have mm-hmm. a similar sense of humour. Uh, they play a game which is... Uh, they try to overhear interesting things that people say. I'm going right. to tell them that one. Yeah, the yeah, problem with yeah, the number yeah. 12. <laughs> I know, I know. And I never got the answer as well. I was so intrigued. I should have followed them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the things from your life because I tend to talk, and I can't help it, a lot of people I know are of a certain age. <laughs> so I'm delighted to have somebody of your age on it. Oh, I'm so delighted that you asked me. Like, yeah, it's it's weird. I feel a, a touch of imposter syndrome, actually. Don't. Um, but it's been funny looking through it. I've found it really difficult. And when I've listened to other episodes, I know a lot of people say the same thing, but I'm, I think it's going to be a lotto of like me just picking... I've got like a mixture of things and we'll see what I go with oh brilliant yeah Yeah, you know I think in a few days or weeks or years I'll probably come across something in my life and be like oh god I should add this to the thing but (laughs) you know I think it's like I think Tim Downey actually because we both know Tim um Mm. he told me this thing that's called the wisdom of the staircase and it's have you heard of this Tim has the most extraordinary things doesn't Doesn't he so it's this it's this sentiment that like you'll you'll be in an argument or something and then like a day later you'll be like oh god I should have said that and it's called (laughs) it's known as the wisdom of the staircase because it's like Uh, as you were leaving you thought of something better so I feel like I'm going to be experiencing that quite a lot over the next coming weeks with this (laughs) podcast (laughs) lovely okay well let's launch into it let's find out what your first thing is Caitlin okay the first thing that I've gone for I knew that I wanted something to do with family in it for me. Um, and so I've chosen Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. Right. In Fermanagh. So I am half Irish. My dad's Irish. That's the Orion, isn't it? That is the Orion, yeah. Mm. And the Caitlin, the Irishness. Yeah, well, I think course, I yeah. think when people like try to cast me in things, I tend to get a lot of Irish parts coming through <laughs> and then I shock them with my northern accent. Um so my dad is Irish and he is one of seven. And he moved over to England when he was 18 and met my mum. And because of that, because he's one of seven, 
each child kind of had an allotted time where they would go back and visit my gran in Ireland. Right. And we got Easter because my <laughs> mum's a teacher. So we got the two weeks at Easter. And I think because of that, that was the only time that I ever saw my gran each year was these two weeks at Easter. Mm. And I think because of that, it made these two weeks so precious to me. And, you know, Ireland's similar to England, but it's also very different in its little quirks. And it was kind of this time that I would get to go back home, essentially, and reconnect with that side of myself. Mm. But I think it taught me lots of things as well in terms of like delayed gratification. You know, I think I really ended up idealizing my gran a lot because we'd spend these two weeks of like intense family time because it was also at a time, this makes me sound old, but it was at a time when like Wi-Fi didn't exist in the same way. And I don't think they had the European phone connection. So no. like I'd, I'd go over and I'd have no signal on my phone and it was just me and my sister and my mum and dad in my grand's house. And so it was these two weeks of intense family time with her and mm. we'd get to see all of my Irish side of the family, which was always really exciting and beautiful. Um, and then I think more specifically, if I was to narrow down further, it would be my grand's house and my grand's kitchen. Because, <laughs> you know, we'd arrive, we'd have got the ferry to Ireland and my grand would have made this, what we called grand soup, which was, <laughs> I think it was like leek and potato base with like loads of other vegetables that she'd found lying around the kitchen yeah. that she would make for us. And it would just be the most delicious tasting thing because I'd have spent a year waiting for it. And she'd <laughs> give us like single cream for us to pour into it. And then wheat and bread, which is, I don't know if you've ever had that. It's Irish bread. Oh God, I it's have, so yes. delicious. Oh, God, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, It's gorgeous with like real butter. <laughs> and I think as well, I... I write poetry and my auntie said to my dad the other day when I was back home for Christmas, she was on the phone to him and she was like, she gets that from the Irish side and it's the storytelling and it made me think that I do, I get it from my gran, I think. And, you know, every morning when I was in Enniskillen, me and my sister would go to bed and it would be like Christmas Eve every morning because we'd wake up and we'd scuttle into the kitchen and my <laughs> gran would be sat there with a pot of tea and um, we'd have these tea parties, we'd call uh, them, in our pyjamas. And we'd got up at like 7am and we'd be sat there until about 9 before my mum and dad got up. And she'd just be reciting these tales. And it would always be the same stories every year, but she'd embellish them slightly more. And she'd like really learn where it landed, where we'd laugh, where we'd cry. Like she'd just perfected the art of storytelling. Mm. And she'd also like let us put as much sugar in our tea as we wanted. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, she was a really amazing woman. And I think that time there with family and specifically with her, you know, she she was obsessed with Coronation Street. And every evening we'd have to go in and be silent while she, she watched Coronation Street because it was like they were her extended family. And when she passed away, she died at 7.30 and we said that she was going off to watch Coronation Street. Uh, <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think Ireland and Enniskillen and... Um, the time spent in that house, mm. running around with my cousins and listening to my grand stories. And I do little performances for her in the kitchen. <laughs> I think that gives me a connection to my family and to kind of my Irish heritage as well. Mm. I love yeah. the fact that you describe it as going home. Yeah, yeah. It's strange. It's, it's, um, I, I really do feel like it's home for me. So much of my family is over there and it's just, it, like I said, it's just reconnecting to a side of myself that I think I yearn for when I'm in England and when I'm in London specifically. It's 
that that closeness of countryside and the way that they live their lives is so much more family orientated mm. um and just the sense of humor and wit and musicality and unlike the english not being ashamed that they write poetry because you exactly you hesitated slightly when you told me that yeah. almost as if oh should i tell you this yeah it, it's something to be proud of i think Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, some of my fondest memories are just sat there with my grand telling me these stories. And, you know, my dad's dad died when he was four, so we they didn't know him that well. And I have no knowledge of him, but we'd sit round almost like a campfire, but it was the kitchen table, and she'd pour the tea and tell us these stories about this granddad that I never knew. And, it, yeah, it just... She had a way of, like, lighting up our imaginations. And she was just so funny and cheeky and had a little twinkle in her eye and one of the most beautiful things that anyone has ever said to me really was that you know we were at her funeral and a guy came over to me who I didn't know and he was like you remind me so much of her and it was her brother that I'd never met before and it just felt so lovely because my nana passed away when I was 14, 15 so I felt the grief but I think I lost my gran when I was older and more acutely aware of what grief was and Mm. experienced it in like an adult sense and for someone to say that they saw her in me this person who I admired and kind of had on a pedestal I think because I only saw her two weeks every year was just really beautiful and you only saw her as an old person yeah so for her brother to see you as a young person and see her in you that's a memory of her as a as a 14 year old it's beautiful Yeah, it is. And I love the way the stories that my dad tells about my gran as well. Like you say, I experienced her as an old woman um, and she was quite fragile as well. But when he talked about her, she was so strong and she'd lived such a such a wonderful life um, and a really hard life. Like she lost her husband really young um, and then she was left with these four children and um, seven children Mm. and had to had to bring those up and you know she did all sorts she was a pig farmer she was a midwife she she led AA groups she she was a really wonderful person and also just had a sense of humor like no one else I've ever met so yeah I think it would be Enniskillen and specifically my grand's house and more specifically around the kitchen table eating soup and drinking tea (laughs) (laughs) grand soup yeah, grand soup. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Do you know, people are often worried, particularly when it's with grandchildren, and I understand that now being a grandfather, mm. that if you don't see your grandchildren often, they'll sort of forget you yeah. or they won't have the affection for you that they would if you were there all the time. But my children had my parents close to them and we saw them regularly. But mm. my wife's parents lived in France. And again, we used to go there every Easter. Yeah. And they remember those trips and the time, the sort of the specific, as you say, yeah. concentrated time that they spent with them. Yeah, I know. And because when I was thinking about putting this down, I felt a sense of guilt about, you know, because this is very much about the Irish side of my family. Mm. I have so much love for the English side of my family as well. But I think, like you say, like my nana and granddad were more present in my life. They would be there. They picked me up after school and, you know, I adore them f- so much. But I guess, yeah, I guess I took it for granted a bit more. Whereas, like, knowing that... I think it was the whole expedition of going to Ireland and, like, you know, we'd wake up at 6am in the morning and my dad would wake us up and we'd get into the car and then he'd drive us to the ferry and you'd had a year to get excited about going and then you got there and then... And then it was, like... It's that classic thing of you were in this thing that you'd been longing for for so long and then time just flew and then you were having to leave again and... 
I think, you know, every time that I was there, I think because she was old and I, because I was young and probably more scared than I needed to be, but I would convince myself that it was going to be the last time that I was going to see her mm. because, you know, she was old. And so every time we got into the car, it felt like it could potentially be the last time. And it just made me value that time with her so much more. It's true what you say, like, I think people do worry about that, but I also think it, it creates a sense of longing and, and excitement and delayed gratification, all of those things. Yeah, yeah. absence makes the heart grow fonder. Absolutely, yeah. There it is, yeah. yeah. How lovely. Well, let's put your gran and a skillin, the soup and a nice big pot of tea on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll go in there. Um, now, you were worried about this list, weren't you? Yeah, I was, because I, I have tried to interpret it in terms of how I think someone might like to hear it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I think that's the people pleaser in me. And then I had to remind myself that I am, it's my time capsule and it's the things that I want in there. So I've gone with that. Rightly so. I mean, there's a yeah. pleasure in hearing someone choose things that they love. Yeah. I hope, anyway. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry right. to all the people who've skipped past that section. There's, there's, no, one, there's no one listening. There's no yeah, one. Great. They've all gone. <laughs> Just you and me. Right, let's move on to number two. Great. Um, so the second thing that I put, similarly in terms of what makes me me, and I think it would be remiss of me not to mention a place called Oldham Theatre Workshop. Mm. So Oldham Theatre Workshop is a youth theatre in Oldham. Um, which is where I grew up. And I truly believe that it is responsible for making me the person who I am today. I had to write a quote about them recently and I said something very cheesy, which was, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And for me, that village was Auden Theatre Workshop because <laughs> it. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I was... Um, a child who liked to perform and um, my mum didn't really know what to do with me and then someone she's a teacher and someone at her school mentioned Oldham Theatre Workshop to her. Was she a teacher of a specific subject or did she teach primary? She was my nursery teacher actually. Oh wow. Yeah which was quite funny because um, she really had to not favour me as a Mm. three-year-old child in the nursery. And you weren't allowed to say mum. Exactly which I think she was quite good at doing actually I think she's quite good at turning off those feelings um but um yeah so she'd heard about Odin Third's workshop and just kind of took me along they did little workshops so you could do like a Saturday afternoon workshop for example and it would be 10 weeks and then you'd do a little performance at the end of it and mums and dads would come and watch and it would all be very lovely mm. so I did that for a few terms and then at the end of one someone mentioned to me that they had these bigger shows which were the summer shows and the Christmas shows that you had to audition for to be a part of. Mm. So I was like, okay. So I went along and I did it and um, you had to do a little audition and sing a song. Um, And I think I sung Guns N' Roses, um, (laughs) Sweet Child of Mine. And I was like nine years old. Um, And lo and behold, they let me in. I would have done. (laughs) I know, just the audacity. Mm. Um, But... Yeah, so I ended up getting in and this was like the step up. So this was 10 weeks of rehearsals, Mondays and Wednesdays. And it was for a big musical that would be put on at Oldham Coliseum, which is a theatre in Oldham. So I think there really instilled the love of acting. And I was there from the age of about seven until 19. 
So after I did, after I sung Guns N' Roses and blew them away, I then did <laughs> two shows a year. Specifically, what's amazing about Under Theatre Workshop, so people might have heard of it because it was known as kind of the gateway into Coronation Street. So it was known as like a lot of actors from Coronation Street came from Under Theatre Workshop. And that, but that was when it was run by David Johnson, I believe he was called. So Saran Jones kind of mm. came through Theatre Workshop. However, the people who've taken over now, James and Sarah, they basically wanted it to be a place for everyone to feel welcome and to build confidence and belief in yourself as like a young person. Mm. And James was the musical director and Sarah wrote the shows and then the rest of the staff there are also incredible. But what was so brilliant about it was that the morals that it instilled in us generally, you know, we were 11 years old and yet we were having conversations about politics and things that were going on in the world around us. And they never just got in like Guys and Dolls, the musical, and got us to do that. They catered it towards us as a group and they wrote the stories around us. Mm -hmm. So it allowed us to feel integral to it and to really care about what we were performing and also to just be more acutely aware of what was going on in society. And it gave a voice to us as young people. It made us feel like what we thought mattered mm. and gave us confidence and a right to be heard. And I think that's something that I've kind of carried through, really, along with, like, the friendships that I've made. That You know, my best friends are still there, have come from there. Mm. And the people who have left that place now have gone on to do incredible things. Like you you just have to look at the pool of people who've come out of it. And ev like so many people are working and doing really well within the industry. But I truly believe that it's because this place allowed young people to feel valuable and to feel like what they had to say mattered. And that won't just work as far as working in the theatre or, or well, that's this it, profession. Yeah. It works in all areas. Definitely. And I think as well for somewhere like Oldham, which, you know, is a struggling old mill town you know mm -hmm. working class to its root to have somewhere like there that is a place for children to go and to play and to dream and you know I also said about it that it made big ambitions feel like achievable goals huh. for us you know because a lot of people would say to us that you know you, you won't be an actor acting is for like you know, more middle-class Southern people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually it made it feel like it was something that we could achieve. And it was also this safe haven away from school and maybe not fitting in in the normal way. Mm. And you could go and just be accepted for who you were and yes. encouraged and... Um, it gives you a real confidence in school as well, doesn't it? That thing of, well, yeah. actually, there are people who are in the top year of this school who I know. They're my friends. Yeah. We do this play together. That doesn't happen in schools. No, I know, I know. And it and it's amazing. And it felt like a family. And it felt like, you know, even now I feel like those people just have my back 100%. Like if I, if I was to fall down in, in any, any aspect, they would be there to kind of scoop me up. And they really taught with love and support. And the other thing as well is that we were never patronised. We were never made to feel like children. Mm. And, you know, James specifically had such a high standard of us. He treated us like professional actors. And that in itself gives you a level of confidence. And I think in a way that's why 
people have gone on to be so successful is because they've taken that into drama school auditions or they've taken that into auditions or in the business place, in the workplace, they feel like what they have to say matters Mm -hmm. when going to high school, being female, whatever, so many things are against you societally to make you feel like you don't. (laughs) So it was, yeah, it was just a wonderful place. Yes, it's that lesson that you can learn. And you see children, I see children do it all the time in this situation, where you're presented with something that looks almost impossible. When you look at a large part or something, or learning a dance routine, those sort Mm. of things, learning a whole song, learning harmonies, you look at that the first time, you think, this is impossible, I'm never going to do this, how am I going to learn that? And then because of the dedication, the hard work, the repetition, putting in the effort, preparation, Mm. all those sort of things, suddenly it's easy. You can do it without thinking. And that's a great thing to learn in life, that Mm -hmm. actually if you put the work in, things become really easy. Definitely, yeah. And also it was just it was just so much fun as well. Like mm-hmm. I have such like wonderful memories of just like running around there and doing these shows and you know, I don't think I've ever played the most breadth of characters. <laughs> you did twenty-four productions. Literally, yeah, honestly, yeah. I just did each one was its own challenge and we did like comedies and dramas and <laughs> all of these things and it just felt like we were part of something really special and everyone was acting their little socks off, you know, and doing like amazing work as well. Like mm. when I left, I went back to see some of the shows and, you know, they're as good as any shows that you see professionally, really. Mm. Um it's just a great place and I think it's a gem of Oldham really and you know with cuts and everything that's going on like the Oldham Coliseum has had a bashing recently and I think it's just so important that these places are valued because it's what creates the next generation of artists and I think youth theatre can get overlooked quite a lot but these are the places that make the Olivia Cooks, the Saran Jones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, Sarah Lancashire. Exactly. Mm. It's these places that make kids feel like they have something to say and that they are valued that will go on to bring art to generations to come. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Oldham Theatre Workshop sounds absolutely gorgeous. I'm, I'm becoming yeah. more and more jealous of your life as we <laughs> go on. First of all, studying in Oxford, how lovely and uh, yeah. learning there. And, you know, before that, what a fantastic opportunity. And those are the things that it's very important yeah. that we preserve and that we encourage in other towns. There are many towns yeah. that won't have that opportunity for young yeah. children. And it's it makes an enormous difference, I think. It really does, yeah. yeah. So Definitely. lovely. Let's put that in and preserve it. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to item number three, Caitlin. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt this episode, but it's the way of the world when it comes to podcasts. We'll be back with the lovely Caitlin Orion after these advertisements. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back, and let's fill no more of your time with commerce, but with the things that the charming Caitlin O'Ryan loves and would want to preserve in a time capsule. Apart from the one thing she loathes and wants to bury forever, here we go. Okay, so this one is a bit more millennial. (laughs) So I've gone for the notes on my iPhone. Okay. (laughs) Right. Because I believe, and this might just be me, maybe most creatives, but I think that if you really wanted to get inside my head, you should probably look at the notes on my iPhone because it's where I go to make sense of things. It's almost the equivalent of me carrying a diary or a journal around and jotting things in it. It's just more technical. Um, (laughs) But what's quite funny is that it's just got such a random selection of things on there. So as I was saying before, I, I do spoken word poetry and I started all of that by writing notes on my phone. So a line would come into my head and I'd write it down. And I find it better to do it on that than on pen and paper because you can delete more easily and you can you can kind of play around with how it looks and how it sounds a bit more easily. Mm. So I've got tens of poems on there that some I have performed and some I haven't. Some are a bit too personal and <laughs> heartbreaky um, <laughs> and woe is me um, that no one will ever see. <laughs> but if you open the time capsule, you might be able to. And then I also have to-do lists in there. I like I screenshotted some that because I just thought they were quite funny. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, so every so often you'll have this poem that I've like poured my heart into. And then on the next one, it'll just say carrot because I'm just <laughs> <laughs> reminding myself that I need to buy some carrots. Or um, it'll have like an email, like an important email that I've drafted on there that I've kind of forgotten to delete. Mm. Or, you know, if I've been having an argument with someone and I'm on the tube and I'm really trying to figure out what I want to say to them, then I'll write it on my drafts and, Very you know, good. get the correct wording is on there. Um, <laughs> I have GP appointments times that I need to be there. I don't know why I don't delete. I think this is probably my hectic lifestyle. Even even for this, for my time capsule, I've got a note of all the different ideas that I had. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's quite meta, isn't it? It is a diary of your life then. Of your oh, it thoughts. really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'll have quotes in there that I've liked and I just put them in there because I want to keep hold of them. I've got... Um, this one made me laugh when I was looking through one pint of water no we is what I wrote (laughs) yeah I just I just think it's like probably um 
if I died and you really wanted to know me and what I thought about things, you'd just have to flick through there. I love the idea of your posthumous book of poetry yeah. with people yeah. saying, that one really does get into her soul. It's amazing, that one. But my favourite is carrots. Carrots <laughs> yeah. is genius. It's one word, it's says <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, sh- I should publish it, really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just makes me laugh. And I, and I love it as well when you're on the tube and you see people. I've, I've looked over people's shoulders and I've seen them doing the same thing. Uh. Like, so I don't I don't know whether it's a generational thing. I have friends who have been on like dating apps and stuff like that. And you kind of write out what it's going to look like on your notes, um, <laughs> which, you know, to ensnare the person. Yeah, you see that? That is an example of why I need more young people on here because I don't even know where the notes on my phone is. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. You're missing out. You're I missing know. out. You could have a whole poetry collection going on. So's the world. I mean, all those thoughts I could have put down. I know, yeah. But actually, they're not missing a thing. Yeah. Well, I do worry about if my phone got stolen or something like that. Someone would come across some quite emo poems on there. <laughs> and my big seller, Carrots. Um, yeah. <laughs> Does it all go into the cloud so it's safe? Yeah, I think it is backed up, thankfully. But it's so funny, like, I, I scrolled down all the way to the end and I had, like, messages to, like, my ex-ex-boyfriend and stuff right. like this. Like, it really is a time capsule of memories for me. But it goes back years then. Yeah, years. And I think it is because of the cloud, so every update of my phone, it just carries it over. That will survive, won't it? So, in fact, you will be able to look back and you'll go, uh, you know what, this takes me right back into my, well, I suppose, 20s when you started it. Yeah, and um, the poems that I've written as well, like... They are over time as well. And it's it just really helps me figure things out. And I've kind of said this about poetry in the past, but like why I do that is because when my head feels so messy, sometimes I just need to sit down and it's almost like journaling. But what's good about poetry is that it's like you're trying to say the most precise thing in the most concise amount of words. Mm. And it helps if it rhymes, but it doesn't always have to. So it is just like, it's like therapy really for me a lot of the time. When did you start writing poetry? So it's actually at Oldham Theatre Workshop. Um, ah. In the very last show that I did, we were doing this show about votes at 16. And Sarah, who was writing the show, kind of called me over and she said to me, have you heard of Holly McNish? And I hadn't. So Holly McNish is a spoken word artist and she's got this book called Slug that you should read. It's a collection of short stories and poetry and it's beautiful. Um, And she showed me this one poem about that Holly McNish had written about the fascination of women in their 20s and 30s dressing as school children and how it's sexualized. Mm. And I had never known that poetry could be political like I'd studied it at school and it was your sonnets and your stuff like that but I'd never known that it could be modern and almost like rap and rhythmic and all of those things Mm. um so Sarah asked whether I'd write something for that play about votes at 16 which I did and then it's just kind of something that I've carried on doing I, I lost touch with it whilst I was at drama school actually because my head was swimming with hundreds of other things, mm. self-doubt and all of those things. But <laughs> well, magpies. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh. But then when I came out of it, something was, like, re-triggered again. And I think, to be honest, I think it, there was an, it was a need for it. It was a need to make sense of my thoughts. And so I just wrote this poem and then I performed it and then quite quickly I've been, like, headlining um, in London and stuff like that. Brilliant. Um, with it and... But it's all come from the notes on my phone. So, yeah. Wonderful. 
All right, mm. well, yeah, no, let's put that in. Nobody else has ever done that. Oh, good. Or anything like it. Well, I'm pleased. It's the idea of the freedom of it, that you create the time where you can just sit, yeah. take a thought and then simplify it and bring it down to its essence. Well, it's interesting because I think... When I first started writing, it was just very much for me. And I don't know whether, I think this is similar with acting as well. Like, you know, we start these things as like passion and it's escapism and, you know, it's something that fuels you. Mm. And then suddenly when you're faced with it becoming your like monetary lifestyle, it suddenly changes and it becomes more, I guess you're, you're, taken outside of yourself and you're trying to please someone else or you're trying to fit someone else's agenda. And I guess why I turned to it, I think, you know, I'd gone to drama school and then I was being met with having to turn acting into something that could keep me stable and and fulfil my lifestyle, Mm. Um, which puts you into your head, which ironically is you need to be out of your head to be a good actor and all of these things. (laughs) And, you know, um, and I think I turned to poetry because it was a way of just doing it for me and creating art that was just what I wanted to do and stuff like that. But ironically, as I've kind of, become more successful in that the same thing is happening and I find myself getting writer's block almost because I'm trying to think what people would enjoy right and it's trying to keep it as something for yourself and yeah in contact with that I think that's that's the secret really yeah absolutely you try and write a hit you'll never write one yeah and if you go for an audition really wanting to get a part the chances are you won't God, it's so annoying, isn't it? It's not fair. You've got to somehow persuade yourself this is just another audition. Yeah, disinterest. I know. It's so attractive. But what a start for you, though. How how soon after leaving Oxford did you go for the audition for Outlander? God, so I I left drama school in June. Mm. Um, I had moved to London because in your final term of Oxford, you have to move to London Mm. and school takes place here, which is great because it's like a stepping stone to where the industry is really. Mm -hmm. So I'd moved here, but suddenly was faced with like London and, you know, um, how huge that is and how financially unviable London is to live in. So, you know, I was was working like all of these crazy jobs. I, you know, I worked as um, a games guru at this place called Bounce Ping Pong, which is like a ping pong party place. So say you (laughs) hired a table to play ping pong with your friends, I would arrive in my little games guru t-shirt and teach you how to play doubles, which I cannot play ping pong. So (laughs) that was my first acting gig professionally. So yeah, so I'd be doing that. I'd be, you know, Airbnb, I'd be like a host. So if you arrived at your Airbnb, I'd have arrived to try and figure out how to use the oven. And then by the time that you came, I'd be like wiping the sweat off my brow and being like, here's your oven. It's a great oven, you know. Um, So I was doing all of these crazy jobs and it was just becoming quite unviable. Like I was so, I was burning the candle at both ends, you know, I had no quality of life. And then this audition came through when I was back home for Christmas um, at my mum and dad's house and it was to play Lizzie in Outlander and I read the character breakdown and it was, you know, this 14-year-old malnourished, blonde, um, Scottish, couldn't do a Scottish accent, um, <laughs> maid who goes on this like incredible journey and I just remember receiving it and thinking, God, like this is just so not me, you know, and it was quite a lot. It was like three three scenes that I had to do mm. and kind of what we were just saying like I think because I was exhausted and because I just felt like I didn't have a cat's chance in hell I don't know if that's the same <laughs> but um <laughs> I hope in hell <laughs> I don't think um, cats have much hope in hell no, no. <laughs> um not even with their nine lives but um I think I just allowed myself to enjoy it and to just kind of 
have fun with it and to reconnect. I think, you know, I reconnected with the inner child side of why we want to do acting and did this self-tape and sent it off. And then I got offered the job off the tape. So it was bonkers. Like, you know, I got, I got the phone call from my agent and it was proper X factor moment where I just burst into tears and fell to the floor. But I think, you know, I've said this before, but I think for me, it was just having someone say, someone saying yes. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'd left drama school and I was auditioning and not getting anywhere. And, you know, um, I said to my friend, I just feel like I can't say that I'm an actor because no one's ever said that I am. And just having someone say yes to me just meant the world to me. You know, it could it could have been, you know, it could have been an advert. At that point, I was just so desperate. Mm. But the fact that it was Outlander, this huge TV show, the fact that it was to play Lizzie, you know, this fun supporting character, and the fact that it has gone on for as many years as it has was just out of this world really amazing yeah okay well let's take the notes on your phone fantastic so we've got two left we've got one you want to keep and one you want to get rid of okay so the final thing i've gone with games nights with my friends (laughs) because i love games i just love them so much i think kind of what we were saying about art in terms of it being the thing that elevates life a little bit games I guess it's a similar thing because you use your imagination, but it just, I just love it so much. I I love playing games so much. I sound like a child, but I think (laughs) it is because it's that, it's that connection with everyone's like having a laugh most of the time, unless they're very competitive and a bad loser. Mm -hmm. But um, it's like, you know, it's pure joy and it is just like escapism. And I think specifically when you're with your friends in like a setting where it's like dinner or something like that, and it just feels so wholesome and lovely. And I now prefer it to like going out on like a night out or something like that, Mm. because you can just stay in and be silly and yeah, just have a really good time. Um, Specific games. I I know you're asking for them. Um, (laughs) So one of my favorite games is... So I call it Mafia, but I think it also goes by the name Werewolves. And I don't know if you've watched over Christmas, Traitors. I did, yes. Just the best television I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) It was fantastic. It was amazing. But essentially, someone had clocked onto Mafia as a game and has made it into a TV show. Mm -hmm. So this is how you can play it for free, people out there. (laughs) But so, yeah, so essentially... um, you know, you've got a Claudia Winkleman character, so the presenter, the narrator, who sets the scene. Everyone closes their eyes. You know, there's about 10 people. Two mafia members are chosen. They go back to sleep. And then everyone else is a villager or a victim. And the two mafia members wake up and choose one person to kill. They go back to sleep. And then it's morning, everyone wakes up, and that person has been killed. And then everyone has to discuss who they think it is. <laughs> and it's just so fun. And it gets a bit scary and a bit, um, people do get a bit competitive. And if you watch Traitors, people went crazy because I think the intensity of it, you know, having to keep the secret from people for so long. The ones who went most crazy, I think, were the people who were the faithful (laughs) because they suspected everybody eventually. Yeah, and they just couldn't rest and they weren't sleeping. Like, it was just, it was such an interesting study into human psychology, I thought, that programme. It was really, like, tribal and it was like the um, prisoner and the guard. Do you know that famous psychological study? Mm. Um, 
there was just so many things at play, like herd mentality, like people would just jump on someone else so that it wasn't pointing at them and, you know, all of those things. It was such a fascinating show to watch. It was rewarding, though, at the end to discover that everybody was able to come through it and still quite like each other. Yeah, yeah. Which could be difficult because I think when you were watching it, you were just like, these people are going to kill each other for mm-hmm. money. But I think it ended, no spoilers, but I think it ended very well so that it was a redeemable ending. But um, yeah, I, I just love that game to play with my friends. Um, every summer we get together and play it. And then um, you've got games such as a game called Celebrity Handbag, which is a bit like charades. So you'd get everyone to write famous names and put them into a bowl and then you split into teams and you have to take them out and say that person without saying their name. So say it was, uh, you'd say, the Prime Minister of the UK, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I can't remember which one it is. I know. That's literally why I didn't say the answer because I, I can't remember anyone. Um, and then the next round, everyone puts those same names back in. And then the next round, you can only use one word to say it. So you have to Brilliant. have been paying attention. Mm-hmm. And then the third round, you can only use mimes. So that's that's a great one as well. Yes. And then my other favourite one is Human Cluedo. So this, we played over a weekend in Wales with a group of my friends. And basically you write out everyone's name and then you write out the same amount of objects. And it can be anything. It could be a a fork. It could be a lampshade. (laughs) It could be whatever. And then you write out the same amount of locations. So in the end, you have to get Tim with a lampshade in a bathtub. And somehow (laughs) over the course of the weekend, your mission was to get Tim in the bathtub with a lampshade. Oh, uh, brilliant. Yeah, and it's just so much fun. I just love that sort of stuff. It just really brings everyone together. And everybody else is suspecting you're trying to do it and they're trying to avoid Literally. it. Literally. Yeah, oh, exactly, wow, exactly. People become so paranoid. You're like, pass me the salt and people are like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I'll get it myself. Just want some seasoning. Oh, um, brilliant. Yeah, but I just, yeah, I love it so much. And I think it is that imagination and it's that escapism and it's just, you know, nothing else really matters when you're playing stuff like that. Mm. It's that alternative reality that you find yourself in. And it's not just for kids, you know, it connects you to that side of yourself. No, it would be interesting to have a game with adults and children. I bet children are probably better at it. Yeah, probably, yeah. Real life Cluedo. Yeah, and then so whoever you kill, you take on their mission. (laughs) So by the end, you've got like two people going for each other. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's brilliant, it's very fun. Very good. Yeah. Game site. Mm. Caitlin, we're going to move on to the thing you want to put in there so that you can forget it. Yes. So I've got three things that I think kind of fall into the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, it was the easiest thing for me to think of oh. rather than the things that I wanted to bring with me. I found that much harder, but I definitely know what I want to get rid of. And it's toxic productivity, perfectionism and people pleasing. Mm-hmm. And all of those things, I think, kind of feed into each other. And I think probably if we were to umbrella it, it would be perfectionism. It's just something that I've become really aware of. In yourself? In myself, but also just in everyone. And it's mm-hmm. that kind of hu- hustle culture and kind of that scarcity politics that exists at the moment. And mm. I would think people would be so much happier and more calm and more settled. I think it breeds anxiety. I think we're so, everyone's so anxious at the moment. And I think maybe it's a byproduct of having come out of COVID where you couldn't do anything. So now everyone's gone into overdrive of trying to achieve and make up for lost time. Mm. But I think it just, it feeds into everyone and everything. And, you know, when you look at how anxious and, and how much people are struggling with their mental health at the moment, I think it's to do with this thing that we're not really talking about. 
like we talk about mental health, but we're not really talking about where it's coming from. And I recognize it in myself as like the toxic productivity thing. And it's funny because even writing these out for this, what I thought was that um, I found myself people pleasing. I found myself trying to write things that people would like to listen to as opposed to what I want to keep Mm -hmm. dear. And I found that quite interesting. And I guess it also feeds into like wanting people to like me and, you know, the perfectionist aspect of things, but toxic productivity specifically. Yes, you don't hear the phrase, oh, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. You don't hear that very often. I thought that lockdown was not fun, obviously, but I particularly thought it would be difficult for young people. Now, as you get older, of course, which I am, you can go a long time without going out, you know. When did we last go out? I don't know, last month. (laughs) So being told to stay indoors for two months, you sort of go, okay. But for my children and for all young people, to ask them, particularly in a situation where you're saying to them, do you know what, I don't think you're going to be in trouble with this, but other people you know might be. So you're doing it for other people, but I need you to, all those things that you would do regularly, like every day go out, Mm. and to ask them all to give that up and to stop it. Mm. For other people, first of all, I think it's extraordinary that so many of them did. Yeah. But that's a time when you're doing everything. That's a time when you're... You're experiencing everything. Your yeah. your life is very full and very busy. Yeah. And to suddenly have that stop must have been incredibly difficult for people, I think. Yeah. I think definitely specifically for, like, late teens mm-hmm. and, like, people at university. Like, thankfully, I'd kind of got through that yeah. side of it. But it was funny. Like, I did feel robbed of important years of making friends and establishing relationships and forging a career and like traveling traveling and Mm -hmm. you know thank god I had Outlander because you know I was already doing that and thankfully could continue it but for people you know who in the arts like you know actors who mainly worked in theater they were just absolutely it was demolished wasn't it like their livelihoods and everything like this and I think there's a lot of trauma that we're still unpacking as a society from that time Mm -hmm. you know in a way lockdown was awful for lots of reasons but in a way for me it was like the first time where I didn't feel FOMO (laughs) you know FOMO Mm. like fear of missing out because there was a comfort in the fact that everyone had to stop so I wasn't comparing myself against people in the same way or Mm. like you know it was the first time where social media really truly felt about connecting rather than about showing off competing competing that's you know I was suddenly going on onto Instagram to see what someone was embroidering as opposed to like what amazing (laughs) holiday they were on um so it was a break in that thing but then I think coming out of the other side of it we've gone back into that kind of ferociously trying to make up for what we lost and I think specifically living in London which is you know people kind of say it's like a rat race don't they Mm. and I definitely feel it I don't feel like I can rest in London in the same way that like when I go home Mm -hmm. I'm able to switch off and not feel guilty about spending a Saturday on my sofa and just recuperating which everyone needs to do but like I wake up in London and I'm like okay how can I achieve today I must achieve I must achieve Mm -hmm. and There's also that level of connectivity that I don't think used to exist in the past because we have emails on our phone and, like, people are doing flexi work, which means that they can email whatever and it means that you're contactable until 11pm every evening Mm -hmm. and you can't switch off from it and it just keeps minds busy and if if you don't, if you're not out there making it, someone else is going to come along and 
do it because they'll have worked harder. And I think specifically with acting, there's that element constantly. You're constantly, because there's so few roles and there's a scarcity. And if you're not doing it, if you're not constantly trying to look a certain way or go to all of these classes and keep yourself fresh in whatever, like learn juggling as a skill. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you're not doing these things that make you feel relevant and whatever, there's this fear that you'll just disappear and you'll be left behind. Mm. And I just think it's everyone's just running on empty at the moment. Mm. It's just constant. It's a constant bombardment and and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it just, it's so overwhelming. I think I look at my friends now and I just see, it's funny, when I used to think about growing up, I never thought about anxiety and the mental health things. And it just feels so prevalent. I, I just see so much sadness in like my friends at the moment because life just feels really hard and it's overwhelming. And I think all people can think to do is to keep forging and forging on. And it, mm. yeah, it's no, That it's is tough. sad. That's really sad. Yeah. Because young people should absolutely feel full of hope. Yeah. They should feel that everything's ahead of them and, and it's an adventure they're going to yeah. have great fun doing and not will I survive? It's wrong. So I'm very happy to take all those feelings and all that, the toxic nature of it all, put it into the time capsule, bury it and get get rid of it. (laughs) Make it gone. But I tell you how I I nearly, during lockdown, I was very, very tempted because you say at least people started putting on nice things on Instagram. I was just going to splash myself with a lot of water and do a quick reel of me going, oh, Bloody hell, that was a good 10k. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, what a lovely thing to meet you. Oh, thank you. I've admired your work. That's very kind. And I must come and see you do some poetry. Yes, please. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Caitlin O'Ryan. Thank you for giving me your time and listening to Caitlin's time capsule. Still, while we're on the theme, here are some timely reminders of things you can do that would be very helpful for us around this time. And when I say us, that's my producer and son, John Fenton Stevens, and me. Yep, we're the only two involved in this podcast. Now, first off, you can subscribe to this podcast. That may seem pointless if you always look out for new episodes anyway, but if you don't, then you will be informed whenever one becomes available and be able to download or stream them at your leisure. It also helps to raise our profile with advertisers and podcast outlets who really take notice of the number of subscribers a podcast has. So even if it's not much use to you, please do it for us as a favour. Thanks. You can also get other people's attention on our behalf by writing a short review and highly rating this podcast. Just click on five stars. I'm sure you can see how that would help too. For your own amusement, you may want to follow me and my time capsule on social media. We're both there separately and I hope it's fun to follow us. Again, in this tech-led world, the number of followers someone has seems to be important. Not necessarily the quality. I can assure you that if you join this team, you will be one amongst a quality group. If you like the theme tune that accompanies this inane rambling, then why not go to Spotify? Sounds like I'm doing an advert for a Spanish holiday, doesn't it? And download or stream it for free. It was written by Past the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Thanks to them for all their help and support. And the occasional party invite, always very welcome. 
I leave you with a bit of poetry, obviously. The author of this gem is the wonderful Pam Ayers, someone I'd love to have as a guest on my time capsule, but she is elusive. Anyway, I learned this poem when I was 19, and it's never left me, I have to say. So here we are, from memory, with apologies to Pam if it's not 100% correct. This is the poem, which I think is called Honey, by the incomparable Pam Ayers. Wish me luck. My brother was, for many years, apprenticed to the trade of building, and throughout this land a million bricks he laid. He built a thousand dwellings in bricks of red and brown, but sometimes, before he built the house, he'd knock the old one down. On this particular morning, with his companions bold, he had to knock a house down that was decayed and old. The ceilings and the rafters, they soon came rattling off. Then the front door and the windows chilled the dust. (coughs) It made him cough. Until only the chimney remained and stood intact. And the others, to me brother, said, you knock that down, we're whacked. Well, first he flexed his muscles, and then he flexed his neck. Then he set about a chimney for to lay it on the deck. He bashed it in the fireplace, he bashed it in the grate. He bashed the bloke stood watching, because he saw him just too late. And where the chimney fell away, he was surprised to see what come buzzing, panic-stricken out in front of him. A bee. Because where the walls had fell away was where it had its home. As all lined up the chimney was a great big honeycomb. A lovely golden honey had come rolling down the walls, all into the rubbish and the dust and the fag ends there and all. Well, he couldn't see it go to waste, this lovely honeycomb. So he put it in a bucket and he took the bucket home. Now, Mother, she was took aback while staring in the bucket. Well, thank you, dear, she says, surprised. All I can say is, what a lucky thing it is you brought this home to me. We'll hang it somewhere warm till it drips out in time for tea. So in the heated cupboard, it was hung with bits of string and dripped into the pan we put to catch it in. It dripped upon the folded sheets and Dad's pants on the rack. So when he put them on next day, they stuck all up his back. But, oh, it was a luxury with honey on our bread. When Mother shouted, what do you want? Honey, please, we said. And in the heated cupboard it gathered in a pan as if there was no end to it. Out the honey ran. But alas, twas our misfortune as we found out next day. See, we was not the only one knew where the honey lay. Now, Mother in the morning went to fetch some for the house and found all drowned upside down inside of it. A mouse. The honey gummed his whiskers and his fur was stuck up tight. And to add insult to injury, he'd missed in it from fright. The mother with a jam jar, she stood at the cupboard door saying, Go and get your father, there's no honey anymore. Father, he ran up so fast his roll-up fell apart, saying, I told you not to put it there. I told you from the start. I told you we get vermin, didn't we get them quick? I chuck it in the dustbin because it's making me feel sick. And so that lovely honeycomb was bundled out the door. We all went back to Marmite like we used to have before. My brother searched in vain. Up every flue, his head he put. He never found no more honey. All he ever found was soot. 45 years that's been stuck in my head. And I still can't remember my password. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 